Oh, the man of tomorrow is here and ready for you, baby, to get into our Zomia 1 Underground Wednesday Q&A. Of course, that's underground only, means you're the only ones hearing this. Uh, those that uh, that get past the, the mighty wall. No, <laughs> which, where is that mighty wall? Supposedly. Anyway, no, just a paywall. <laughs> but regardless, uh, whew, what a week it has been, um, and it is not stopping. So uh, Sovereign Tech had to come out a little bit late uh, this week, but of course, you know, we'll be back to the, the Sunday schedule here in pretty short order. Um, I got a lot of great questions in uh, this week. I'm going to actually, I got a couple from a great patron and I want to make sure I hit both of those. So we're going to get into those. But before I do any of that, got to say, you know, um, I have been, and, and it's really been, because I got a it's a couple of entertainment questions. We're going to actually, we've got a fitness question that came in, going to get into that uh, in a second. Don't have any tech questions. So if you're one of those that I guess doesn't, you know, even though I think everything is technology related, like you literally such an important thing to, to drive home here. You cannot today, really, unless you're like trying and actively you want to speak about something other than tech, you really cannot have a conversation today that doesn't have to do with some kind of bullshit coming out of Silicon Valley. I mean, you just can't. Or at least, at the very least, where that's not somehow the cause, right? It's impossible. Um, I could, if I wanted to, I mean, in some ways, I, I kind of always have, but if I really wanted to, uh, I mean, I could talk about anything on Sovereign Tech. I don't even have to really talk about tech because it's just, it's tendrils are in everything now. You know, everything coming outside of Silicon Valley, which, you know, for a lot of people, they consider Sovereign Tech to, to, you know, merely be a Silicon Valley watchdog show. If that's what, how you experience it, well, I mean, even then I could still talk about just about anything because again, it's everywhere. You know, and you could say, well, tech has always been everywhere in human history. Sure, it has. But now, you know, there is like a central focal point where that comes out of. And, you know, you can always point at it at where where this is the cause and this is what's happening, you know. So anyway, um, I say that merely to point out that whether I'm talking about entertainment, even fitness and other things, I mean, it's how it, it, all of it is a tech conversation. It all ultimately has to do with tech. Uh, in fact, it, it, boy, it's talk about something that's getting crazy out there. Um, the amount of streaming services that are dropping like flies. Uh, I mean, I, I didn't expect half of it. We, we've all seen this coming. You know, we've all known that that this is going to happen, that you know, you're probably going to get left with Netflix. Um, I don't even think CBS All Access We'll go through all of this unscathed, uh, but you'll have Netflix. Maybe you'll have HBO of some kind like DC universe shows. You might not have even known this, that there is a DC universe, uh, you know, streaming channel. That's all DC universe content, which is both, you know, it's funny. I mean, it's amazing in one sense that we live in a world where you can kind of, all right, here, here's a quick part of this conversation and it's going to bleed in nicely to, uh, to the questions that I got. Actually, I got the questions on Patreon, interestingly, uh, but it'll bleed nicely into those questions later on. Here's, here's the strange thing. So all of these streaming services that are going on, Netflix, Hulu, blah, 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 whatever. I mean, Netflix is, is, is very broad. 
Okay. And they're just throwing more and more money wherever the fuck they can throw it. It's, it's, it's really amazing. Uh, and I don't mean that necessarily in a good way. You know, Hulu is kind of broad, but the bulk of these new streaming services that are coming out are revolve around certain niche parts of franchise entertainment, like, like DC, the DC universe channel is all about the DC universe, but then the expectation and the requirements to make running these streaming services viable is that it's not niche in its appeal. Like it's a niche product, but everybody has to watch it. And how, how people in Hollywood don't see this as diametrically opposed, you know, that, okay, we only want, we want them to pay for a DC universe, you know, streaming service. And so we want them to be into DC and there's so much content on there. We want them to watch everything. DC DC is like, there's no way they could watch anything else in their life other than what's on DC universe. Right. But then, you know, but that's a niche thing. And we recognize that there's a strong niche for this, but then to make it viable, to make it justifiable, to make it uh, affordable to even, or profitable, should I say to even run a streaming service based around the DC universe and the DC universe alone, everybody on planet earth has to watch it. How did nobody in a boardroom see this as, as nuts as like, wait a minute, that, that, that math just doesn't work. We can't run a niche product and expect everybody to be into it because by its very nature, it's a niche fucking product. You got me. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how half of these decisions are getting made. I, I really, really don't. Um, there's either some kind of, I mean, all I can imagine is, and this again, will speak nicely to, to a question we have later on in the show. All I can imagine is, is that either th- th- these people are the either just incredibly stupid or they're incredibly brilliant and they're doing something. There's some kind of experimentation going on, I, you know, like behavioral experimentation or something. I don't know. Th- those are in my, there's always more than two possibilities, but those are like the two primary possibilities that I can only imagine how this is working out this way. It just doesn't make any fucking sense. The strategy that these companies are engaging in. Because DC Universe, I mean, that 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 streaming channel is going to fail. I mean, if, if they're just going to toss all their shows onto HBO, HBO Max or whatever it's called now, if they're just going to toss everything onto that streaming service, like, why have the other one? Of course it's going to fail. Very weird. So, anyway, um, speaking of streaming, <laughs> I got to tell you, the one thing I am looking forward to now every single week is, you know, Tuesday nights at 6.05 p.m., when, uh, when NWA power comes on that man, that is some solid ass wrestling. I, I cannot, I, I get so excited. I am, you know, chomping at the bit. Tuesdays have become an incredible day because you get security. Now my favorite podcast. And frankly, you get the only thing I give two shits about really watching, uh, on the regular, you know, on, on quote unquote TV, even though it's only on YouTube or Facebook watch. And I'm sure as fuck not going to watch it on Facebook watch. Uh, but NWA power, man, that that's been a lot of fun to see something to see something old school really do well while bringing in a lot of newer elements, but it's still that old school style. Um, I hope my only hope is, is that it doesn't fall prey to exactly what we were just talking about, where 
to make this viable and worthwhile that and profitable, uh, I mean, Billy Corgan's running it of literally that Billy Corgan of Smashing Pumpkins. You know, I mean, he, obviously he's got plenty of money, okay, to even do this in the first place. But I hope it's profitable enough, but like they don't have to draw in, I don't know, whatever, however many millions of people. You know, as long as they don't have to have millions of viewers and they can get away with, I mean, or at least they don't have to have tens of millions of viewers. You know, as long as they can have that, I, I just, I don't want them to change. Like, I, I like what they're doing. I know they're figuring things out as they go along. They're taping, you know, you know, I mean, they're taping these things in advance and they are, you know, thinking about it and being very methodical. I want them to continue that process. I just hope that they're willing to give it the time. In fact, it's funny. I was, so, quick conversation on this. And just to show you how things are different. And again, this is also going to play nicely into a question that we have later. Um, I was, there's a company, in fact, we're going to talk about this during our album of the week segment on this Q and a, there is a company called rock candy records. They, all they do, they do not sign new bands. They don't do anything like that. They will take classic albums, generally rock, maybe sometimes a little bit of pop or something, but generally some kind of rock or metal. They will take those classic albums and they will put them through a remastering process and it's beautifully done and they turn out wonderful. They will maybe put on some extra bonus tracks of some kind, maybe songs that know that had never been released previously or some live cuts or, or edits or something like that, that they will add on to it. Now I was, I was going to the site because I, you know, I am very interested whenever rock candy comes out with a new album, because generally it's an album that I love. And some of these albums could stand a good remastering. Again, we'll talk more about that during album of the week. And I was reading, I forget the name of the band that I was reading like rock candy's write up about, but let's be clear here. Rock candy is run by industry professionals and industry veterans in music. Okay. So these are people who a have been there in the music industry for decades since the sixties or even seven or, you know, seventies or even sixties. Okay. So they know what the fuck they're talking about. And, you know, they were there. It's not anecdote. They're people that actually worked on this shit and were there and saw the contracts and everything in the industry at the time. Okay. These are authorities. We don't like to use that word often, but we're going to use it in this case. These are authorities in when it comes to music. They absolutely are. Now, I was reading this, uh, this, this one, you know, they do little blog posts about their, about the releases that they have coming out because they don't release a ton of albums. There's, there's very few, but they're talking about this one band. I forget the name of the band. I know it begins with a G, but that's not important. And they were saying, this is how the blog post opened up basically I'm paraphrasing, but this is the, this is the gist. And you can go there. If I, if you, if, Oh boy, I don't believe Brian sovereign, you know, no modern music's fucking great. I don't believe Brian sovereign. Okay. Whatever. If that's the case, I'll find you the link and I'll send you to it. I'll send it to you. Just, you know, message me or whatever. And it said, one of the great things about the music industry in the seventies was record companies allowed bands 
to grow organically, sometimes over several albums. So what they're saying is, is that in the 70s, if you had, you know, some, some great songs, okay, you would get a record deal, right? You would get a contract for such and so many records, which still can happen today, but I don't think it's, it's certainly not as lucrative as it used to be for, for the artist anyway. And even then that's debatable if it was ever lucrative for so much for the artist, but I would say, yes, it was at one point. And so you would get like a three, maybe five album deal with a, you know, with, with a record company. Now I'll grant you those record companies would expect those albums to come out lickety split, you know, come out pretty fast. I mean, for example, Kiss, you know, throughout the seventies, they had throughout the entire, from, from 74, when they released their first album to whenever, you know, I mean, throughout the rest of the, the, the decade, they had, sometimes it was two albums a year, but at least one album a year they had come out really until 1986. That's incredible. Consider that today. Now it takes three, four, five years or hell. If you're tool, it's 13 years to come out with a new fucking album. Okay. Consider that. That's amazing. So it's not like the, I mean, the record companies expected you to, to work. All right. They weren't just tossing you money and, oh, maybe we'll get an album someday. It wasn't like that. Even though I know that, that bands do have deals like that now with record companies. Uh, like I know system of a down has that kind of deal where they are required with who they're with presently, I think to release a couple more albums, but it's been like 15 years and, and now the record company just leaves them alone, I guess about it, but whatever, regardless. Okay. So you used to, you know, that you'd get these deals and the, the, the managers, the management, the music industry in general understood that, okay, we know we've got something here. We got to give this time. We got to, got to take the risk with our money and maybe we'll get something special out of this. And if we don't get something special out of this, well, we have other bands that are doing, you know, double platinum albums that, uh, that, that, that they'll make up for the slack. Okay. Like they used to, be, they used to be willing to take some risk with, with their money. And, you know, th- I mean, this, Man, I, I could have such a such a long conversation around entrepreneurship with this, because more and more this this whole entrepreneurship thing is just fucking horseshit. Um, because you know, real business, real entrepreneurship, and a lot of this other shit, you know, comes down to a lot of risk. But no one's willing to take a risk anymore. Everybody's like, okay, give me my stats from Google and Facebook, and oh, if I don't see the ROI, fuck it. And it's like, you know. Facebook and Google are just making you some, some pretty spreadsheets. They don't know any better about who's looking at what and buying where it's like, all you basically have is the bottom line. And the only way you get real bottom line, you know, like, and you get it in the black is if as compared to the red where it's negative, the only way you get it in the black black is if you take some serious risks and nobody takes risks. Everybody's like, Oh no, well, I'm not, no, we're not ready to, 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 uh, to market, you know, to do marketing. We're not ready for this. We're not ready for that. Well, it's like, well then shut up. You're not a business. Businesses used, industries used to take risks and that is largely gone. Not always, but largely gone, you know, and in fact, and, and even if they are say a company or industry willing to take a risk often enough, it's, they're not willing to to take the long-term risk. Okay. Like these record companies in the seventies. So fine. We'll give a band three, four, five albums to figure it out. 
okay, to hit that magic sound. Because if they get one hit out of those three or five, three to five albums, it's going to pay for everything, right? If they get one genuine hit. So they understood that it makes, that it made sense to do that. And you know, that would, that record deal, again, it wouldn't last forever, but it would be something that would go on for quite a few years, you know? And that's why I, I say that to contrast it to, you know, Google or something where you could say, well, Google takes plenty of risks. Yeah. But they shut shit down in like no, in no time. You know, they'll, they'll come out with something new and then they just, they either put it in the grave by no longer developing for it or promoting it, or they literally put it in the grave by shutting it down. And they do so in very short order and they don't give it the time to allow it to, like I mentioned with these bands in the seventies, organically grow and mature and become something really special. Okay. So now I'm bringing all of this up and I'll bring this back to what I was talking about, which was NWA power, the wrestling show. And that is you know, there is this expectation today that if you don't do a million downloads or a few million views or whatever the fuck that, Oh no, this, this doesn't work. Nobody's willing to give it the time. Like the bands in the seventies were given multiple albums to figure shit out. Yes. That was risky, but the, the potential for the return, the nay unicorn, you know, of that, getting that, that, that one hit or something like that would, would make it all worthwhile. And we live in a world, like I was saying, where unfortunately nobody's willing to like really take the time with it. No one, no one's really willing to risk anymore. And it's so funny because I'm constantly hearing how oh, entrepreneurship, yeah, they're all about risk and they're all this. And like, I don't see anybody risking shit. Nobody's t- playing a good long game anymore. Nobody's, you know, risking long-term and that's real risk is when you think about it in the long-term. Now, I mean, I get it. Some people say, well, entrepreneurs are, you know, they're risking, uh, their own livelihoods and all that. Okay. Well, whatever, then you can go fucking eat, you know, ramen noodles and and whatever else for however long and, and you'll be fine. Just don't do it for 20 years. Otherwise you'll, I don't know, you'll get cancer or something, but you know, you have to do it for 10 years. Fucking fine. You know, but don't, don't give me your shit of how you came from nothing and blah, 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 you know, about that. When you're not, when all you're really risking is yourself and you're not putting like a whole lot of other risk really out there, you know, and and you're not like trying to bring other people in on your team to, to risk with you and, and, you know, even to sell them on that, it, it just, it drives me nuts. So I hope that this is one of those things, you know, like with NWA, NWA power, where they are willing to put in a very, very long-term risk and just stay out there until people just like, can't avoid it. You know, they, 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 they can't, they can't escape it anymore, um, that it's there. And also I hope that they are doing things in such an inexpensive way that again, they don't, that they can just appeal to a niche and they don't have to have millions of viewers. You know, I, I, I mean, if you get enough passionate people, Okay. They can make up for whatever, uh, well, for for example, in fact, there's, I know there's a business book that talks about this speaking of with, with music, actually like Iron Maiden, not everybody in the fucking world is going to listen to Iron Maiden. It's just never going to happen. But all Iron Maiden needed was, and this is true for dream theater as well, where all you really, all they needed is like that dedicated hundred thousand people or so. And I'm pretty sure NWA power can get that. All you need is those dedicated hundred thousand people that will just buy anything that you have come out there more or less. 
you know, that will just jump on it. And you can live a very, very comfortable fucking life on that. So this need for, I'm just hoping that, that this is one of those things where they don't feel the need that, oh, we have to have everybody fucking watch this shit. Um, in fact, this is also going to be a conversation that'll dovetail into, we're going to be talking about on TIE Fighter Renegades this month of October 2019, Rob and I, I know we're going to be talking about the Benioff and Weiss thing, and I have some words that speak directly to what I'm talking about here. Because there, there are problems with that, because we've heard, now we know Benioff and Weiss's strategy for how they got Game of Thrones off the ground, and I think if you're a fan of fantasy, you should be pissed as fucking shit about how that happened. We'll talk about that uh, in, in TIE Fighter Renegades. So anyway, but I got to tell you, what's going on with NWA Power right now? I mean, it's so fucking exciting. I, I love it. Now, speaking of power, <laughs> speaking of a little bit of fitness, let's get into a little bit of fitness. Then we got a couple of great questions from a longtime uh, Sovereign Tech supporter who I, I, I just think she's dynamite. Um, no pun on AEW there, by the way. <laughs> AEW, you know, they had that one that one segment with with Cody and uh, Cody Rhodes and uh, and Chris Jericho. Boy, that was a good time, man. That was a good time when when Cody Rhodes stuck out his hand and had MJF wrap it up with the uh, with the scarf and he punched through the glass. Woo, that was some good shit. <laughs> I mean, the rest of the show wasn't that great, but that that segment was Cody Rhodes. That that boy can do some business. Uh, anyway, <laughs> really, I love that guy. Uh, so, okay. Um, speaking of fitness, so I have a couple of listeners that, uh, that I'll regularly talk to and, you know, we kind of talk back and forth on, uh, you know, some fitness and bodybuilding goals and, and, and things like this. Um, and I'd recently talked to them about how, uh, a problem that I've been running into and they wanted me to talk about this on the show. So whatever they're, they're, you know, they're patrons, they're underground members. Fine. I'll, I'll talk about whatever folks you control the show, this show, especially, Whatever you want me to talk about, you email me, you message me, you DM me, whatever. You tweet at me, and we'll talk about it right here on this Wednesday Q&A. Okay, whatever you want me to talk about. If you don't like what I'm talking about, I tell you this all the time. All you got to do is you ask me the question, and I'll talk about anything you got. Okay? Especially now, because, you know, the question hopper is is a little low. Uh, but anyway, so um, something that I've run into... And, you know, when you're, when you're working out, whether you're, you know, depending upon what your goals are as far as bodybuilding, lifting weights and all this stuff. Okay. Um, one muscle group or a muscle that is a challenge for lots of people, uh, because this is one of those things that really comes down to genetics to, to have something that can look really good, uh, are calves, uh, your calf muscle, very, very difficult to develop. Um, unless you've been hiking mountains your whole life, I mean, it really, really can be a challenge no matter how much weight you're putting on it to develop your calf muscle. Um, I mean, in fact, a lot of people don't realize this, this is, this might be the number one muscle. You might not even know that this gets done. This might be the number one muscle that gets implants that, that people get implants for. I'm not kidding. Uh, I mean, it's, it's actually very popular for a lot of people to get, uh, like bicep implants, implants all over the place on their body to make them look huge. You know what I mean? Um, it used to be quite a scandal back. I mean, it's been a scandal for a while, but I remember in the nineties, there were quite a few scandals around it where they did find out that certain bodybuilders like a Mr. Olympia were, they actually did have implants. 
Um, so calf muscles do, I mean, there are people who get implants in their calves, you know, just to, to do something to, so that, you know, it, <laughs> they, they, they can look, uh, uh, symmetrical, I guess you could say, um, because it's a very hard muscle to develop. Now, I don't, I don't think I necessarily have that problem. Again, it can very much come down to genetics, whether or not you can really build, you know, very large calves. I don't think I'm one of the people that, that, that has that problem. Um, but something I was discussing with them, the only real like pain point that I have, I was really having pain in my Achilles tendon, uh, specifically the one on my right foot, but both of them were really, really killing me. Now I started experimenting around this because what, so I wear uh, five finger shoes. I've talked about this on the show. I wear five finger shoes. They're gold's gym, like, and they're made by Vibram. So they're official quote unquote, five fingers. Okay. This isn't some, you know, knockoff of some kind, some knockoff brand. And also these are not like things not made for the gym. They are literally, they literally say gold's gym on them. It was a partnership between Vibram and gold's gym. These are five finger, uh, shoes meant for the gym. Okay. So, you know, I, I got these and I've been trying them. I've been wearing them for a very long time. Um, and one thing about these shoes, as good as they feel in just about everything and as helpful as they have been for, especially with my form, like when I do a squat, when I do a back squat or a front squat, but when I do a squat, uh, I had, I had when I was wearing more traditional shoes, in fact, I was wearing Under Armour shoes. I mean, look, like I, I, I do my research on this shit. Okay. <laughs> like, like I really look deeply into this stuff. I'm never wearing, you know, any, any kind of knockoff brand. That's never the problem. Um, I'm never, you know, it's, it's nothing like I make sure I'm wearing stuff that is that is supposedly at least made for the task at hand. Okay. So I was wearing Under Armour shoes you know, before this. And the problem that I was having with form is that when I would go down on the squat, I mean, I'll squat deep, but my heel would come up and it's not supposed to, you want to keep it good and flat. That's to activate the quads and all this. Okay. So that's part of the reason I got into wearing five fingers again, because that, you know, those are designed to where, yeah, they are going to keep your foot in a more natural state. Right. And so instantly when I started wearing those, my squat form you know, went from yikes to perfect. Okay. Or near perfect anyway. Uh, and I've been very pleased with that. The problem is, is that doing any kind of calf press, uh, and, and understand that, you know, I'm, I'm calf pressing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pounds, uh, certainly more than what is natural and certainly far more than if you were, you know, climbing mountains, you you know, hiking mountains your whole life. But anyway, um, my Achilles just be killing me, you know, for, for days after the fact too, it just, it was not good. And I finally came to the conclusion or to the idea anyway, that what might've been going on is that those five finger shoes are not high tops. And there is effectively, there's no ankle support. And there's no, um, you know, like, like there's no support for, for the Achilles tendon. As to where just about any other gym shoe I've ever worn, you know, is usually like a high top. And at the very least, you have the tightness of the laces, like giving you some kind of support or something along those lines. And you, you just, you have some kind of support. 
Um, so I decided to make a change on this and I think it's worked out very well so far. I'm not running into that pain like I used to. I mean, and, and, and basically the, what I ended up getting, and this is what people wanted me to talk about, you know, the, the shoe change that I went through. Uh, I mean, it, it's, it's hard to believe, you know, when you are wanting to go for a, you know, a certain monstrous size, um, I mean, there, there's so, you know, if you were, if you were just, again, if you were, weren't going for crazy size, then, Hey, you know what? Um, probably do working out barefoot, which I did for, actually, I did that forever. Um, you know, when I had a home gym, uh, you know, that, that'll, that'll do great for you. But if you're trying to get to any kind of, uh, shall we say inhuman mass, <laughs> which I am certainly going for, um, I mean, you gotta, you know, you got to support your shit. You know, you, you got to support your joints. You got to support your stuff, you know, to, to, to get there. So anyway, um, I did switch up shoes and I actually went with, um, now I've, I've known this part for a good long while and you might find this helpful yourself. Okay. I've known this for a good long while that for decades throughout much of the history of bodybuilding, do you know what shoes most bodybuilders wore? They just wore a pair of Chuck Taylors, a pair of high top Chuck Taylors. That's, that's, that's all they ever wore. And that did the whole business for them, you know? And, and those were, I mean, now I know there's companies that sell, I mean, of course you have like, you know, uh, the rock, he sells his own shoe and all this. I wasn't going to go there again for a few different reasons. Um, but regardless, bodybuilders, for decades have basically just wore a pair of Converse that, that was, that was their go-to, you know, they wore like a pair of basketball shoes because they have a good flat, even sit. So it's great for the squat, right? There's no forward momentum on them. Um, and they have the high top that, you know, they have the support, um, at your ankles, a little bit of support. Now, again, there are shoes that have like a lot of support, um, that are vi- that are totally custom. You would never wear them outside of the gym. Uh, I mean, they, they look funny because they, I mean, they have a very weird design to them that, uh, and, and that's, if you are, thing is, I think for now, while I do want to get to a quote unquote more inhuman size, um, I don't want to get, you know, preposterous. Okay. Like there's guys out there that just look, you know, I look at them, I go, Whoa, no, no, no. I'm not interested in going there. Um, so, you know, I, those shoes might be pushing it. So I didn't go with those, but basically I was, you know, looking into this. I'm like, okay, I I want, I got to find some kind of alternative and come to find out the greatest bodybuilder of all time. And he is okay. I mean, he really, really is no, not Arnold, (laughs) even though I think Arnold could easily sell his own shoe. In fact, I'm surprised he never did. Um, but Ronnie Coleman, you know, the King Ronnie Coleman, who, uh, is tied with Lee Haney for the, uh, most amount of, uh, Mr. Olympia, uh, uh, championships. He, or, you know, awards he's taken home eight. Uh, he is widely considered pun intended. He is widely considered the greatest bodybuilder of all time. And I don't really disagree with that. Uh, I mean, he is the fucking man to, to, you know, in fact, like, even if, if you went on Instagram, you know, people talk about, Oh, you know, the rock, uh, you know, everybody watches the rocks videos or everybody hearts, you know, the rocks pictures and everything. Well, let's ask the question. So does the rock actually like talk with and heart and view videos of anyone on Instagram? Well, I'll tell you one guy he does Ronnie Coleman because, and he calls him big bro and he doesn't call many people that. And that's because everybody knows Ronnie's the king. 
So Ronnie has his own kind of shoe. It's called the carbon training shoe. Uh, and you, you actually, you can get it right through his site and everything. And that's what I've been messing with. Unfortunately, they're, they're all black, which is nice as well <laughs> for me. Um, but they are, I mean, they're basically, uh, just well done Chuck Taylors. You know, I mean, they're not Chuck Taylors, but they look very much like them, but it is that classic style shoe that bodybuilders have been wearing since, you know, since bodybuilders decided to put on a pair of shoes. Uh, so you really can't go wrong with this. And I've been very, very pleased with the results on them. So, you know, just putting that out there, if you are running into this issue as well, because actually I don't find a whole lot of people talking about this online. I was actually going to message, uh, uh, Jeff Cavalier of Athlean X. And I was going to be like, Hey, could you, you know, talk about this? Like what, like what's going on? Um, you know, why, why, and, and it's not in proper form. I mean, I think it's, it's a matter of the amount of weight without support. Like, I really think that that was the score. So I'm putting that out there is that's my experience. And basically saying at the very least, if you're not going to go with a pair of Ronnie Coleman shoes, uh, wear a pair of high tops for fuck's sake. Okay. If you're going to get crazy with your calf muscles, I mean, understand, you know, the calf muscle is something, and I do that you can work out every day. Like, I mean, you, you can lift with it every day because it's recovery time is so quick. Um, but they, they really, really do need that support. If you're going to go to the, you know, the next level, I mean, for a long time, you know, I was only doing, uh, you know, calf raises basically with, you know, maybe a hundred pounds. Okay. Total like 50, you know, 50 pound dumbbell or something in each hand. Then you get into like calf raise machines and things like this, you know, and now I'm doing, say for, again, with both feet, single foot, I'm at around 200 pounds, but you know, with both feet, you know, you're doing, I'm doing around 500 pounds or something like that. And so yeah, you need support when you start getting into those weights. Right. So anyway, you might find this helpful. I know I have a lot of people, well, again, I mean, the reason I'm even talking about this is because I had a couple of listeners uh, that, that did want me to talk about it. So there you have it. Um, Anyway, maybe I'll put a link in the show notes for those. I don't, I don't have any kind of affiliate link or anything. So, so don't think it has anything uh, really to do with that. So let's get into a couple questions. One of them is actually very short. So that, that works well because we're, we're already halfway through on this episode, even though last week we went an hour and a half and everybody, or I got a lot of great response, um, from that episode, uh, from that Wednesday Q and a last week, uh, where we ended up talking about the, about Kabbalah and all kinds of crazy shit. So Anyway, um, this is a very, very quick shot question. Uh, well here, let, actually, so this gal made three comments and I'll read you the third one first, and then we'll get into the two questions. So here's the, the third comment and please, again, there's two questions. And then she says, and please be as long winded as you want in your responses to these questions on your Q and a, and if, uh, and if you wish, uh, if you choose to answer them, of course. So. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Cause I can get long winded. Um, but yeah, so, so these are questions that are ex- that where, where there is a somewhat of an expectation of, of long answers. Um, we'll see how long they go. The first one I might not have as long an answer, uh, but, but there you go. I, I'm thank you for the, you know, absolutely. I'm, I'm willing to be long winded and I, and I appreciate uh, that, that you appreciate that when I do. So, you know, actually through the magic of, uh, editing, <laughs> Ellen just walked in the room <laughs> and she just brought up, um, got a couple starships that I had, uh, on pre-order for some time with, from, uh, from Eagle Moss. Boy, uh, 
of course, Star Trek Starships, I've talked about these a few times. Um, I've never done like full on reviews of these things. And at some point, maybe I should. But I actually just got the, the Simtar, uh, or Simtar, however you want to pronounce that, from Star Trek Nemesis, which is a movie I actually really enjoy that I, I, I don't, I kind of understand some of the hatred towards it, but I actually think it's a really great flick. Uh, in fact, there's an episode, a, if you listen to Sovereign Trek, there are previous episodes, I think, where I included the review that I did of Nemesis a few years ago on a rewatch. Uh, but anyway, you know, this looks amazing. I mean, the ships I like to collect from them are kind of the rare ones, like the ones we never get a great look at. I mean, I have pretty much every Enterprise under the sun here from Star Trek. Uh, but I like to to get the ones that, that are, uh, I don't know, like, like there's something very different or they're a rare look at something else. And of course, this was a Riemann Warbird. Right. But its name was the scimitar. Uh, this is kind of cheap. <laughs> Actually, like it, it's it's stunning to see it in so much detail. Uh, they don't let its wings like really fully span out. But that was a very nemesis. Star Trek Nemesis was a very dark movie. And so you really couldn't get a good look at this ship. So it's interesting to get such a great look at all the detail that John Eves, who's just one of my favorite artists, uh, he designed this. Uh, that John Eves did for it, but Eagle Moss's actual production, like these are supposed to be die cast ships. This thing's barely die cast. These wings are really bendable. Boy, I'm afraid if this thing dropped, it would just snap in half. Uh, and it, it, it just, it just feels cheap. And these things aren't cheap. You know, not, not monetary wise. That's, that's very disappointing. Um, I, I could see why maybe a lot of people didn't get too excited about this one because I, I, I gotta tell you, I think it looks like shit, <laughs> but oh, well, the magazine, the magazine that comes with it will be interesting uh, to, to read. Um, you know, at some point, actually Eagle Moss announced, uh, I don't know if we'll get into this in the next Sovereign Trek or not, but Eagle Moss announced that they are ending their main, which is pretty much how they started. I think their, uh, their main, fuck, this thing won't even stay on the stand outrageous no well, anyway whatever um they're ending their main subscription star trek uh starship subscription line which will end at issue 180 which i mean that's amazing that's been like one a month for years now or, or well for some time um maybe it's more than one a month but because i mean to get the 180 already <laughs> but whatever uh but they are ending that and they are only going with i, I imagine probably because like the whole magazine subscription service which did did we talk about that where did we talk about that like the oh it was on the last sovereign trek where we talked about like uh, star trek fact files and we talked about um like how they made card sets for operation desert shield not even desert storm desert shield crazy <laughs> You'll have to listen to that to find out more about that. Um, but it's interesting that they are ending that, and, but they are still going to release more ships. Uh, but I guess they're probably going to do show-specific ships, like they do Star Trek Discovery ships right now, which are separate. Uh, and they're probably doing pretty well, because now most of the ships they make are a larger size. They're like a special a special edition. As to where originally they are only about 5 inches, now they're doing like the 8 to 10 inch to 12 inch even lines. Um... And they can sell them for like twice the price, you know, obviously because they're twice the size, but really it's the same plastic or, I mean, it feels like it's mainly plastic, but die cast line 
uh, or mold process. Um, so I imagine that's far more profitable for them. But uh, I have problems with this company. I, I, I really do. Part of me wishes I never really got into this. Not because necessarily because of the money, but just like, I don't know. I, I, I feel like they're... There's something not right about this company, but anyway, I'm not, we're not going to go there uh, right now. We have questions to get into from listeners and those are what really matter on the, uh, Wednesday Q and a. So first question, um, is read any new sci-fi novels lately? And that's it. That's the question. There's a, there's a bit of a longer question for the second one, but there's the first one. Um, you know, I have been reading, here, here, here's, here, here's the trouble. And in fact, maybe I'll bring this, I wasn't sure where I was going to be able to bring up this bit of conversation, but maybe I can bring this up now in this uh, question. So, um, I have read some new science fiction novels, not just listened to, I've read because there aren't audiobooks for a lot of these things. Um, I haven't read like any new series. I haven't, you know, taken a dive, even though I've heard like Steve Gibson, my hero, he talked about the Terran fleet. Terran Fleet Command or something like that, some kind of trilogy that's out there that sounded kind of interesting, but it it still sounds kind of like Space Marine, and you know, I mean, I, I don't think that's Steve Gibson's flavor, but frankly, if I want to do Space Marine stuff, I'm gonna go play Doom, right? I mean, <laughs> like that's that's the pinnacle of Space Marinedom, if if that is such a thing. But I I will tell you what I have read in a second. Or no, no. All right. I'll lead off with what I have read. So I did read, and this was actually really, really cool. Um, I read The Astonishing, which is a novel. You might, that name might sound kind of familiar, The Astonishing. Um, it is a, it is a science fiction novel, but it's a novel based off of Dream Theater's concept album from a few years ago called The Astonishing. And it's written by a Peter Arulian, who is also a metal artist himself and a writer, and he kind of tries to combine that into like weird fantasy realms. And the astonishing is just such a thing. Um, now this book was, I know it had been done and came out a long time ago, uh, or, or a couple years ago, but you could, it was very limited in how you could purchase it. It has an introduction by dream theater guitarist, John Petrucci, of course. And it's ultimately based on the story that John Petrucci and dream theater came up with for their concept album, which is a, a pretty cool story. Kind of reminds you if, if you're familiar with the storyline around Mr. Roboto from sticks, you know, that album where like in the future rock and roll is banned and all this stuff. It's, it's along those lines where, um, everything is being made by AI and there is something lost in that. And humanity is kind of falling apart because of it. It's, it's, a, and, and there's like a rebellion around it and everything. It, it's actually, it's a, re, it sounds cheesy as hell and it kind of is, but I thought it was really cool. I really dug it. Um, so I read that. I thought that was, that was a really cool book and you don't really have to be a dream theater fan to, to appreciate it. Uh, in fact, there might be, you know, I've been rereading, re-going through a lot of uh, philosophy texts lately, uh, real ones, not not ones by people who claim to be philosophers. Uh, and in fact, Nietzsche is really big on music. Like he he thinks music is this very unique uh, part of the human condition that that we don't that that is actually one of the rare things 
that points at our evolution, uh, even though we're still animals, but points at our evolution away from our more animalistic ancestors. Uh, again, he doesn't give that credit to morality, laws, government, or most of the things that you imagine in culture. But music specifically, he calls out as a, and I'm going to paraphrase it with this word, though he wouldn't use it, as an ascension property. You know, it is, it is a property of the human condition that shows it ascending to something else. So there is an importance to music and that, and I really appreciated the astonishing, uh, you know, kind of, kind of hitting at that, um, that, that it, it's actually central to what we are as human beings. It was, that was pretty cool. So I, I definitely recommend checking out that book. You, it, it used to, again, it, it used to be very hard to get your hands on. And even when you could buy it, it costs, I don't know, like 70 bucks. And then there's a special edition, a special edition that costs 150 bucks. Again, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where like Iron Maiden, there's some of these bands, you know, they have their 100,000 followers who will buy anything that they put out and they'll spend any amount of money and they can just live off of that. And, and the Astonishing was kind of one of those things. But now the Astonishing is available uh, on Kindle. So you can get it for like seven bucks. I mean, it, yeah. So I, that, that was really cool. The other book I was, I was actually a, a reread. Um, I've been re I've been going through William Shatner's tech war novels again, which those started in 89 and he kept publishing those all the way up till 97, not counting the comic books, um, which some of those actually just came out a few years ago, even, but it's a total of nine books. I love this series and I think there's so much brilliant shit in this, uh, that I, I totally recommend it. I mean, it's kind it's kind of a future cop story in a way, you know, it's kind of a cop story in the future has to do with drugs and blah, blah, blah. But it really goes into a lot of different directions, especially when you get into the much later books like tech power and tech money. Uh, I think it's a brilliant series. Uh, So I have been rereading tech war uh, as well, as as far as that goes, as far as uh, science fiction novels. But I, again, I've, I've been listening to a lot of different things um, as late that, that aren't exactly sci-fi. But also I did, uh, and I did a full review of this on the latest episode of Sovereign Trek, where I uh, listened to, quote unquote, reread um, the Star Trek, the motion picture novel, which I think is great science fiction. You know, f- forget about it even being Star Trek, though that that's important, but forget even about that. I think it's genuinely great science fiction. I really, really love that book. Uh, so that was that was a pleasure. But, you know, speaking of, of pleasure in reading, I want to get into that. Okay, here quick. Um, you know, I read a lot of books. Like, I read every Star Wars book that comes out. Every, every Star Wars book that comes out. I read every canon Star Trek novel, like the Star Trek Discovery books. And admittedly, these books take up most of my time. And I've got to tell you, uh, it's getting annoying. (laughs) And I know I don't have to read these things. Okay. Um, But there's, there's two points to this that I want to bring up. One is, okay, is that if you are, and I'm not saying everybody involved has to do it. Okay. Um, but to me, if I am presenting, okay, like if I'm doing a show about Star Trek, uh, we better be talking about as much, you know, Star Trek, at least that's canon, which means that it's something that people can share and can, 
you know, glean or, you know, shine some light on whatever we happen to all go and enjoy, say in the theaters or something like this. Okay. Uh, somebody on your team, in my opinion, it's my, I get, it's just my opinion. And I'm saying anyone really has to do this, but like, I really think you should be talking this shit up if it's Canon and it has supposedly anyway, some kind of bearing, or at least there's the claim on what's going on. Um, you know, if, if you want to be out there, I guess, let me, let me make this simple. I, I know what I enjoy. And I like listening to people who know, shall we say, little known things or who pay attention to detail. And if I am doing a show about Star Trek or Star Wars or whatever, I want to be, at the very least, I want to be, you know, and I'm not saying anyone else has to be, or, but maybe someone on the team needs to be that person that has like the little known facts. I mean, like on, on TIE Fighter Renegades, I mean, there's plenty of things that I know I didn't experience in Star Wars history where Rob, you know, totally has my back you know, and, and it's beautiful. And that's a great, and, and that's the thing is that you want people that I just like, I can't stand. I, I've stopped listening to Jedi council to collider Jedi council because nobody there, you, like they, they don't, they're just talking shit up and they, they talk about it from like more of a, a, a business perspective and not from like an in-universe star Wars perspective. And so I don't fucking care as to where, I mean, honestly, like a couple of years ago, that show was actually really great where, you know, Harloff and, um, uh, oh shit, Ken Knapsack. There we go. And Ken Knapsack, like those guys, they were reading everything, you know, they're on top of every comic book and you know, they're going into it now. It kind of ended up being fruitless, but I always enjoyed that. They knew all of these little details, you know? Um, and yeah, I, I want that to be presented like in these shows. So I feel a certain personal duty just because it's what I want out of a show to, to do this, you know, to consume all of it. But I, and this is true for Star Trek and Star Wars, but I got to fucking tell you, um, it's getting to the point, like there are so many Star Wars books that have come out there. There aren't that many Star Trek books that are actually canon but there's so much shit out there. Like it, it takes a lot of my free time and I know it doesn't have to, I know it doesn't have to, but there's the person that I want to be on air. Okay. That has all of this knowledge. Right. But the funny thing is, and here, here, here's there. And the reason I started it in the first place is, and I had this, I had a conversation about this with a great sovereign tech listener as well. But I started doing it because I loved it, because I love Star Wars, because I love Star Trek, because I love blah, 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 blah. Okay. And so, and, I, and I've even said this, especially like on Sovereign Trek episodes, or I know I've said it on TFR, where like, oh, how terrible we have to talk about Star Wars, or we have to talk about Star Trek for two hours or something like that. What a hard life. Woo. So, you know, <laughs> wipe the brow, right? And it speaks to, you know, what you're constantly told is, uh, you know, like the way to live is that like, what, what's the old saying? If you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. Let me tell you something. That's horseshit. That is utter horseshit. Okay. Because I, like I said, I started this because I love star Wars and I love star Trek, but it's gotten to the point and you know, I can ultimately say it's my fault, but then also you got just these money fucking grubbing corporations that are in charge 
of these franchises and universes now, and they just don't stop, you know, <laughs> like they, they won't even let you sit and breathe on the content. And in fact, I read a great quote. I shared this on Twitter. I know I did. I read a great quote yesterday that said to the effect, corporations exist to manufacture, not create. And I think that is so dead on with so much of what's going on in entertainment right now. But here's the thing. I am growing to hate Star Wars because it is like to, to consume all Star Wars, you know, everything that's supposedly attached, the whole universe is interconnected and everything. So to have the full Star Wars experience, like it's almost to the point you have to literally live Star Wars, live and fucking breathe it. And I'll never sign up for that, you know, because I, I'm not a one trick pony. I'm not just into, this is kind of like that DC universe conversation we were having earlier in all this. You know, and it's weird because, okay, so to justify everything that they have that they're doing, you know, the books, the comics, everything, like they've got to hit, they've got to be getting everybody buying into this at some point, right? But then at the same time, they want you to just like be into their niche, and and it's getting weird because now entertainment is starting to really feel like sports. And I know I was there in the '80s and the '90s when you had Star Trek versus Star Wars. I got that, and that's bullshit because. At the time, you were allowed, you were able to just sit, you know, like, enjoy an episode of The Next Generation and relax. You know, go see a Star Wars movie in theaters and relax, you know, and and, and sit on that for a while. Now it's just you're getting hammered over and over and over again, you know, over the head with, okay, no, now this book's out. Now this comic, this is out, this is out, this is out. And it's just, and it's insane. And they're all running off of this idea that it's canon, which, frankly, they don't really care about that. But I'm growing to hate these things. You know, be, and look, I am doing, technically, I am doing what I love. I am consuming these universes that I have grown up with and that I am so passionate about. But now it's like, it's so much. And they just keep throwing it at you. I mean, fuck, good thing Audible is only 15 bucks a month. <laughs> you know? Because <laughs> if you had to lay out $30 or however much a pop for, you know, these fucking books and everything that comes out. I, I mean, no one could keep track. No one could afford to, to, to be on with this stuff. Um, yeah, like I, I'm, I'm growing to, to actually loathe it and not love it. So that whole idea of do what you love. Oh no, 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 that, that has, the, there is an upper limit to that where you can, you can really get too much on that. You really, really can. And I, I think there's a bigger conversation to have around that, but I just, I want to bring that up. Like it's fucking annoying, you know, that, and, and the sad part is, and ultimately this speaks badly of Disney because again, I don't have to do this. Right. And Rob even tells me, yeah, Brian, you don't have to do it, man. You're taking it for the team. It's great, but you don't have to do this. And Satan bless him for that. But it ultimately speaks bad about Disney because like, I kind of wonder if, if, most of this, just most of this content was great that they're having me take in. I mean, fuck, we got a TV show starting uh, on the uh, November 12th, you know, the land Delorean and so on. If most of it was good, I'd probably be a happy boy going around, but the bulk of it is pure rubbish. It is pure shit. 
And, and it's funny because I don't find myself, you know, speaking of reading new sci-fi novels, I don't find myself reading a lot of new stuff. And you know why? Because the new stuff that I actually do read, you know what all of it feels like? It feels like somebody, and this is true for Star Trek, Star Wars, and even other series, okay, that are modern. Um, it feels like they took, and, and I remember I talked about this, the most egregious example was the Canto Bite novel, the Star Wars Canto Bite, or it, it was, it was actually like four stories in one book that came out around last Jedi. Uh, I said, you know what? They could have picked up like a couple Las Vegas or a couple novels about gambling in Las Vegas from the 1960s or whatever. They could have picked those up by some shitty ass author that nobody's ever going to remember. And they could have just, you know, put it in, scan them, put them into, I don't know, office or some kind of software and just said, find all these words. And like, anytime it says Vegas, replace it with Canto bite. And I swear they could have, they, they could have done that. Like that. And in fact, I'm still wondering whether or not they did. And it's feeling like this more and more where basically these novels, there's nothing about these novels. I was just reading, you know, it's sad, like, like with, 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 um, and maybe I'll end up talking about this. Uh, I'll end up talking about this on TFR, uh, oh, fuck. What was the name of the book? Uh, there was another. So Rob and I, on the last TFR, we reviewed a Galaxy's Edge novel called Black Spire. Okay. And it was great. I was like, wow, that was really cool. That felt like Star Wars. There was, um, you know, like it felt different. It felt like that story needed to be told in the Star Wars universe as we knew it. Okay. And so it worked and it was great. And that's the thing. A lot of these books coming out now don't require the fantastical settings, outer space, far off worlds, whatever, to tell the story. The story is basically, it's a babysitter's club book in outer space. And who the fuck wants to read that? Like, it doesn't even make sense. So there was another Galaxy's Edge book that I, I knew was, was coming out. I didn't know it was going to get an audiobook. Okay. But it ended up getting an audiobook, and so I, I listened to it, and it's by uh, Zoraida Cordova, uh, and it's called A Crash of Fate. It's Galaxy, Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, A Crash of Fate. And this book was some dumbass, like, relationship crap book, uh, a, a, a woman who, she keeps falling for the wrong guy, and all this other stuff. It was so bland, so banal. There was nothing about it that said, okay, this needs to happen on the planet Batuu. This needs to happen in the Star Wars universe. There was nothing Star Wars about it. It was horse shit. And I think a lot of companies are putting out a lot of, a lot of crap. They are, I think they're literally recycling books from decades past that aren't even science fiction novels, putting a, you know, putting a, a, a veneer of sci-fi on it. And then they're selling that as, as like, okay, buy this book. And, and maybe they attach it to some franchise and then make you think it matters. And, and that's the thing is that, uh, you know, all, I don't even mind if a story is not that great. Okay. But at least make it something that feels like it requires to be in this universe. It needs the magic of this universe to tell this story. And we don't get that anymore. And that's as true for Star Trek as it is for Star Wars, as it is probably for a whole bunch of horseshit out there. I don't even want to know what Doctor Who novels read like now.
It's a sad state of affairs. And it's not like there is an original shit that could be done. I mean, go read the latest Peter F. Hamilton shit. This stuff's awesome. So, yeah, anyway. I am growing to loathe <laughs> everything, I guess. But, oh, fuck. I swear, I'm, I, 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 can, I can already see it. That, like, a, a year or two from now, I am going to be, I can just imagine that I'm going to be saying this, that novels, you know, reading the, the written word is the only viable and uh, exceptional form of entertainment worthy of your consumption. I, 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 I can just picture that that's going to happen. And then, in, and even then I'm going to say, and it's going to be outside of some kind of franchise, you know, like it's going to be works outside of a franchise. Dune maybe being the exception. Everybody should read the, read the Dune books, the original, original six. But anyway, okay. So we do have another question. <laughs> you said you didn't mind if I got long-winded. I got long-winded on you. I hope you had fun with that one. Um, let's get to the next question here. You said the comic book industry is from the same person. You said the comic book industry isn't the comic book industry you grew up with. What do you find wrong with it today? Oh boy. Looks like we're going to go a little long on this one, <laughs> this Q&A. Uh, everything I just said about novels today, or about some novels today, franchise novels anyway, that is also a problem with comic books. Um, you know, nothing feels like really special uh, anymore. Um, there's so much to say about this. So... The first thing that comes to mind for me is that when I was growing up, comic books, like an issue of Superman or Batman, was 9.99999 times out of 10. It was a one-off. It was a simple one issue, one story, that was the end of it. Okay? And you were done. There was not, it did not take you six months or a year or more to get conclusion to a storyline. The much of what we've been talking throughout this whole Q and a, the idea that the comic book industry is no longer and, and whatever's behind this, and look, this is true for the entire entertainment industry, from video games to movies to TV shows, whatever. There is this There are two forces, and I think that they are actually opposing, but ultimately, but there are two main forces going on. One is focus groups, okay, where everything gets, goes through multiple focus groups, whether it's to make sure somebody doesn't get offended or to make sure it's acceptable to one, you know, whatever the fuck, okay. Everything gets focus grouped to death. That's one. The other force at play here is that, and I mean, I don't, I don't know what kind of budgets they need for comic books or if it's because they need crazy turnaround times. I don't, I don't know what's going on there. Okay. But for some reason, comic book companies feel like they have to make just this, this metric ass ton of money with every issue that they sell. I don't know how that came to be because I can guarantee you it was not always that way. 
It really was not always that way. Um, I can tell you what started on making comic books, or I have an idea, I should say, of what started to make, because there's never just one thing, but what started to to allow comic books to make a ton of money, okay, uh, especially in the 90s, which is when a lot of this started going on, but, well, I mean, but then you have, and this is where that, that, that focus group thing becomes an opposing force, is the focus groups won't let comic books be what made them sell so goddamn much. So let's talk a little bit about what I think, and I'm not the only one, but what I think caused this really, what ended up being a phenomenon in the nineties where certain issues of comics would have multiple print runs. Okay. Now there's a collectability thing that came out of the nineties because you had the economic boon of the eighties. Okay. That, you know, people were just throwing money everywhere And in the 90s, you ended up with like all these multiple covers of everything. Now that worked for a little while, just like how baseball cards were a hotness. Like, like I said, if I mentioned this earlier and in Sovereign Trek, where like you could literally, you know, the 90s was such a crazy time that you could make money off of making a fucking trading card set, you know, not about baseball, but about a fucking military operation like Desert Shield and there were even cards for Desert Storm after that. Okay. Which was, you know, the original Iraq war. Um, (laughs) that's, that's crazy town. So certainly that's part of it is that you had like these, these multiple covers that everybody would jump on. This is going to get into though, ultimately what doesn't, what, what, you know, it seems like most comic book companies can't do anymore and why they're not selling so well. Okay. But anyway, you had these multiple covers and all the stuff that certainly got DC and Marvel and other companies uh, that whetted their appetites to where, oh, you know, fuck with one issue. We can sell as long as we put a different cover on it. We can sell hundreds of thousands or millions of copies. We have to do five print runs and all this. And I mean, look, you know, even up until fairly recent history, uh, I can remember in even in 2002, actually, when Devil's Due uh, rebooted or restarted um, the G.I. Joe comic they went through like six print runs with issue number one of a fucking G.I. Joe comic. And it was a little company like Devil's Due. Devil's Due is still around. Um, but they were, I mean, they were a totally new company back in 2002. Six print runs. That's crazy town. You know? Um. Anyway, so, so certainly, you know, you had that. But what was really going on was, is you had your base, your baseline comic book fans that had been around since probably the sixties were still enjoying and maybe buying a few more, you know, series because they had the, the spending power in the eighties. Okay. And you had that baseline fandom of comic books. Okay. They were into comic books. What ends up happening and not that this was new, but it was the first time that it wasn't just made for kids, even though it would be on Fox kids of all ironies, but you had and you you can't say you can't say enough of how much this changed the comic book industry. While this is not the greatest comic book movie of all time, I give that to the '78 Superman. The Tim Burton's Batman, okay, that from '89, that movie was huge, changed everything, and it made it made Batman something that was like dark and gritty and more for adults. 
Now, what comes out of, were there an increased sales of comic books that year? Yes, of course there was because of that movie. But what really did it? I mean, one movie, people go and see it. And at the time when VHS wasn't even like the biggest thing yet, it wasn't like people could constantly rewatch it or something. So it wasn't in the popular consciousness as, as much. Okay. Um, at the time where it just like would constantly feed people's desire for, Ooh, I want to read more comic books. So what happened? What happened is a few years later, you get Batman, the animated series, arguably the greatest cartoon of all time. And the reason it's considered the greatest cartoon of all time to this day is because it treats no one like an idiot, whether you're six or 60, you are not a moron. And you, and this content will be made for you to enjoy. And it was a very, very talk about magic. It was a magical cartoon series that absolutely could appeal to everyone. And again, much like Star Trek didn't treat any, or like classic Star Trek didn't treat anybody like an idiot. Star Trek discovery treats plenty of people like idiots. And so that, when that happened, that's when kids all started watching. You, you had a cartoon that longtime comic book fans would fucking love. And oh, did we? And then you would, I mean, well, I was more of a kid, I guess, at the time. But anyway, but then the kids would jump on this because it was on Fox Kids and it was being billed to kids. And they'd watch it and go, wow. You know, and I don't know what was going on in the 90s. A more interesting question might even be. I don't know what was going on in the nineties that allowed for these cartoons to appeal to such broad age ranges. For example, gargoyles, right? That was a Disney or ultimately a Disney property. That, that was a brilliant cartoon to this day. One of my favorites of all time, but it was made for kids as well as adults. Very clearly. You, you could clearly see that if you're an adult, there was a lot more to take in on what's going on. It was amazing. Okay. Um, Anyway, so you had Batman, the animated series that turned so many kids into comic book fans because they just wanted more because that show was so goddamn good. They went to the comic book shop. Give me more of that guy. That show, that show was so good. I mean, it was the very first time I can think of where, um, a, a character would end up transposing. I mean, you'd have plenty of characters that would go from comic book to cartoon, but not the other way around cartoon to comic book. And of course you had the character of Harley Quinn, which was not a DC comics creation. That was a Bruce Tim creation that ended up in Batman, the animated series. Right? So that became a big deal. And then you had X-Men, you had the X-Men cartoon at the time, which same score, right? Marvel knew exactly what they were doing. In fact, Marvel would have a string of I would say very faithful to the comic book, uh, uh, cartoons and ones that also treated no one, no demographic, like an idiot. The kids could enjoy it. Adults could enjoy it, whatever they, you know, they had Iron Man, Silver Surfer, even the fantastic four cartoon at the time. This is all in the nineties. Uh, the Spider-Man cartoon was, was huge at the time. Fox kids was the destination baby for great television at the time. It was amazing. Okay. To say nothing of power Rangers, but you know, that was certainly something that maybe didn't appeal to the adults so much at the time. But regardless of all that, so you had these great comic book adaptations that got people that got a new generation of people into comic book stores. All right. And because of that, because of those great cartoons, that's and, and because they were so well done and they were so risky and shit was on the line, characters would die. 
in those cartoons. Those cartoons were dark. They were serious, you know, and they weren't, they weren't lollygagging around with this message of, oh, we have to have hope like the MC, like the MCU has, which is just horrible. Okay. And so you, you know, you had all these people going in there and, and it became such a thing that for a while, you know, that Marvel's like, well, you know, this is what people are into. Why don't we reboot or reboot our universe? And they ended up doing like heroes are born that didn't really take off because I think ultimately they didn't realize is that, yeah, you're getting kids buying comic books again and they are enjoying them, but it was too early. That generation that got sold on comic books because of those cartoons, X-Men, Spider-Man and, and Batman, the animated series, they weren't old enough yet to have so much disposable income <laughs> to where you could like, you could make a, you know, shit ton of money off of them. Okay. Uh, I mean, and their parents weren't, weren't, they, they weren't going to understand, you know, oh, this, this ultra rare foil version of such and such comic that just wasn't going to happen. But sales definitely went up in comic books because the kids just couldn't get enough, myself included. Okay. And then you had your, your hardcore comic book fan base that was still, you know, buying in. So the nineties was a very strange time for why they, for, for how they were able to sell, you know, so many comic books. And when you'd get into the late eighties and nineties, this is when, I mean, you had beforehand, you had crisis on infinite earths, you had all these other things. Um, you know, you'd have some big storylines that would happen, uh, in Marvel and DC, who were still, you know, the big heavyweights, you know, Dark Horse was just starting out, uh, and some others and like Image were just starting out. Okay. Um, they would do these storylines, but they would more or less keep the storylines. Like maybe there'd be an issue where it had something to do, like an issue Wonder Woman would have to do with it. But by and large, they would sell you like either the storyline would exist across these comics and there weren't that many. Okay, like there weren't that many titles that you would have to buy or they would do it in a either maybe a one off graphic novel or they would do it in a six issue miniseries that everybody could jump on. Uh, for example, like you had the Eclipso series back in the day, um, you had Final Night, you had a, a few of these different ones, you know, in the 90s. Okay, there were these big DC Universe or Marvel Universe events or something like that. But what ends up happening and I can remember one of the, it was uh, not Last Laugh, it was The Killing, or no, no, wait, yeah, it was Last Laugh. Not The Killing Joke, it was Last Laugh. Joker's Last Laugh, where supposedly the Joker was going to die. I think this was like in 2001. This is when shit started to get crazy. There was the miniseries for Joker's Last Laugh, but then every title in DC, and there were a lot of them. I mean, you had... There wasn't just a Flash comic. Impulse had his own comic. I mean, like all, all these different, all these minor ass characters had their own comics, right? Because they were coming out of this 90s boon that was directly correlative to the cartoons, which those cartoons eventually ended. Um, and I don't know what happened there. Kids went to, to high school and were told that this stuff isn't cool anymore or something or what. I don't know. But regardless, okay. So then DC, they you know, they got... <sighs> They got greedy. Okay. And, and Marvel did the same. And so you would have the miniseries you'd have to buy. And then to get the complete story, you'd have to fucking buy an, one, at least one issue of every single title that DC was putting out there. And, you know, a, a kid certainly, and even adults would go into the comic book shop. Like I gotta buy all these fucking comics. Like I remember at the time, 
you know, I, I felt like I'd spend a whole paycheck in the comic book store. And, and, and after a couple of weeks, I went, well, like, wait a minute, this isn't right. You know, and, it, and it's more of this, like, too much, right? And the problem is, is that for whatever reason, and, and, and again, like, that, that boon in the 90s, whatever killed that off, I'm not exactly sure, but it stopped. And so these comic book companies were just doing every goddamn thing they could to try and replicate these numbers because I don't know, Joe Caseta wanted to buy a Corvette that day and God damn it. He couldn't because you know, Spider-Man didn't sell 20 million copies. And so these, these companies just got, got really fucking greedy because of, I mean, and again, there's a few reasons. There's the collectibles, you know, having all the different covers and all this stuff. Um, there was the, the way that they were doing the, uh, the story arcs, you know, the universe-wide story arcs that fell apart. Again, when I was growing up, none of those things were a thing. Or if they were, they were kept in their place. They were kept in some degree of check. They were affordable. Okay? And in many ways, you know, you didn't have all of these characters constantly crossing over with each other, uh, uh, you know, anymore. Um and it's not like you didn't have plenty of characters because fuck, you had like three different justice leagues. You had justice league Europe. You had justice league of America. I mean, it was because you just had that many characters that you could have that many teams with. Uh, I mean, same was true. You, what you had, uh, the different X-Men teams, you had the West coast Avengers, you had the Avengers, but then when all of these, when DC and Marvel, I guess, got it in their heads that, well, we can sell a shit ton of copies. If we make these stories cross over with every title, then it turned into same thing where like I was talking about with star Wars novels earlier, it turned into the same thing where, Holy fuck. I have to read, I have to read like a hundred comics a month to get the entire story. And not, not only did you have to read that many, you had to buy that many to say nothing of like, if you wanted to try out something new, I mean, you just, it was a deluge. You know, it, it was, it was so insane and it used to not be that way. And then, you know, then also that's the same time when comic book companies started doing these, these story arcs, not just across the universe, but within the titles themselves. And, you know, you would just, you would give, I, I can only imagine, especially classic comic book or, you know, like, like gold and silver age, uh, comic book fans, you know, they're used to getting a story and, and oftentimes they get a moral and sometimes a very progressive one at that you know, moral at the end of the comic and all this. And now, you know, these comics were navel gazing. Um, they were no longer social commentary, which was something that attracted a lot of people onto them. But I mean, you know, like you, you would have to, I mean, and this is true now, like with star Wars comics, which I read every one, where I've got to wait like a year. It feels like to know, okay, so what's going to happen, you know, with what got set up in issue 44 and then I have to wait until issue 70 to find out, like, this is, this is just, it, comic books used to not be that way. And it all comes down to this, this absolute, you know, greed for, we got to sell all these copies. Now, let's get back to the focus group part of this. Okay. And I am supportive and I've always been, and I have very logical artistic defenses of the, for this. Okay. Here's, here's the thing. 
Comic books, another part in a big, big part. There are whole companies, especially Image. And like Image was a bunch of different companies, right? Like there was Top Cow within Image, there was Dreamwave and all this. Okay, there were entire companies that they did millions in the 90s. Again, partly because people had some disposable cash and you had, you know, a, a new breed of, uh, or a new generation coming into the comic book stores uh, because of, again, the cartoons. They did millions, not on necessarily alternative covers, even though alternative covers would partly sell into this or partly play into this, but on the fact that you had, let's just call it, scantily clad, you know, like, like crazy proportions people, not just women, men too, and whatever else. Okay, John Johns? Um, on the covers of these comic books. And on the inside as well. I mean, like, like it wasn't just a, you know, the, don't judge a book by its cover. Oh, no, it wasn't just in the covers on the inside. I mean, I, I, I can't even imagine the cup size that, like, Wonder Woman's breasts got to in the 90s. And I'm not complaining. Believe me. Okay, I, I mean, and, and there, there were so many, I mean, and, you know, Power Girl was, well, you know, Power Girl. Uh, I mean, it, it, this was everywhere. Sex was selling comic books in the 90s like there was no tomorrow. I mean, and you had, you know, I mean, you could just imagine like some of the, like, was it the X-Men number one or whatever that, was that Leftfield or McFarland that was on board? Or McFarland did the Spider-Man issue. Uh, you know, I mean, you just, you have Cyclops and I mean, he's just rippling. I mean, Arnold couldn't possibly look like him, you know, and, and you just, it was all this larger than life stuff. And, you know, every comic book was basically a giant billboard for people's eyes. And you were just looking at it and you go, holy shit, that, that, you know, that's got me going. And I'm not, again, I'm not really knocking it. Now there are people, psychologists, whoever else that want to get into that. Oh, this is setting up like crazy, uh, unfair expectations for what men and women need to look like and blah, blah, blah. And I get to some degree where they're coming from. Okay. Like I, 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 I can appreciate that. All right. But ultimately that comes from a lack of having a firm grasp on reality and fantasy. And you say kids can't help that. Well, where the fuck are their parents? Oh, their parents are sitting on their lazy asses watching TV or doing who knows what the fuck else in the kitchen. You know, maybe if parents spend time with their kids, they would have a better grasp of the difference between reality and fantasy. Ultimately, I will blame them. But regardless of that, okay, no doubt about it, that was selling issues of comics like hotcakes. No doubt about it. Now you get to today and this is where the focus groups come in and the focus groups and the supposed thought leaders or online publications. See you later, Kotaku. <laughs> and whoever the fuck else are, you know, just thriving off of all of these hot takes or you have people who looks, I mean, and a lot of times like, Hey, if, uh, you know, Asian people don't get a lot of representation in entertainment, that is a fucking fact. By comparison, you know, to, to other groups, that is a fucking fact. There's no, I, I don't, I won't argue against that for a second. Okay. Um, black people still getting, you know, treated in stereotypical ways in a lot of, uh, entertainment and content and all this. Is that happening? You bet your goddamn ass it is. Yes. 
No doubt about it. No argument from me on any of that stuff. I'm not saying that any of that isn't real. Okay, it is. Is it great to have, you know, uh, to, to have like representation of a lot of different minorities? And I don't just mean racial. I mean all kinds of minorities. Is it great to have representation in comic books of those things? Absolutely. In entertainment? Absolutely. I'm so on board with that. Um, I mean, you know, I was talking about Space Marinedom earlier, right? You, you know why I love Doom? Or Doom? Because I thought... So there's a long theory that Doom is actually... Like, the Space Marine in Doom is the descendant of the character from Wolfenstein. From Wolfenstein 3D. Who is a Jewish guy. And so I thought, when I was a little kid... Fuck yeah, the Doom guy is awesome because he's a fucking Jew, you know? And I say that because I'm one. And I'm like, oh yeah, you know, here I am, Jews in space, let's do this, right? (laughs) Like, I thought that that was really cool. So, yes, I understand the desire for wanting representation, you know, some kind of minority, whatever, okay, in entertainment. But then let's be clear about this, that when you are trying to have representation for those things, that is a niche, okay? that you are trying to appeal to, you can only, if you are genuinely trying to appeal to that niche, you can only sell to that niche. You can't sell millions of copies. It's not possible. And on the flip side, so you say, well, let's put this, let's put this issue of, uh, you know, X-Men number two or whatever, because it's a load of shit. No, (laughs) let's, I love the X-Men, but Let's put this issue of X-Men number two. Let's put it through 20 different focus groups. Make sure it doesn't offend this person, this person, this person. Make sure it's acceptable to these parents. Make sure it's acceptable to this, blah, 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 blah. That way the parents don't have to actually do parenting and they can just hand it to their kid and, and walk away um, and not have to think about their child because they're depressed. You know, they're they're in their own lives. Okay, Wh- whatever, whatever it is, it goes through all these focus groups. And by the time it's done getting focus grouped to death, which is a phrase that we need to accept, you are left with nothing and you are left with something that who the fuck would buy that. One of like the, one of the top guys at Marvel, actually, in fact, I know I talked about this on a podcast at some point, this is years ago. He, he came out and said, you know, we tried to appeal to minorities and our business tanked because of it. Again, they went through the, the problem wasn't that they were trying to appeal to minorities. That's not the issue. The problem is, is that they want to appeal to minorities and make $20 billion at the same time. When, again, like we were talking about earlier, the math, that math doesn't add up. You either make something exceptional for a certain group of people, because everybody has different tastes, so to make something exceptional, you're, you, you can't, you, to, to make something that people will talk about for years, you cannot You cannot make something that appeals to everybody. That is literally impossible. That is impossible for humans to... You you can't do that. Because everybody's different. Everybody grows up in different lives, grows up in different parts of the world. Whatever it is, they have different cultures. They have all this stuff. You cannot make something... I mean, that that says something, that has staying power, that will create a fan, that will create a long-term customer for you. And have it sell, you know, just like crazy numbers that you thought you got in the nineties. What sold crazy numbers in the nineties again was, you know, you just had a bunch of horny ass fucking people that were finally, 
you know, being able to buy content that, that, that didn't treat them like an idiot, you know, and that was like larger than life and all this stuff. And then, you know, you get into the aughts and you get into the past few years and they're constantly reselling number ones. And so you're losing your long-term fan base because they're tired of rebooting universes. Right. Uh, and then also, um, you are focus grouping it all to death to where nothing happens. You won't kill off characters anymore. Uh, hell this morning, this morning, Wednesday, what, what, what's today? The, the, the 30th, October 30th, 2019, this morning, there is a, uh, what is it like the, the dark multiverse or something that DC's doing where they are rehashing the death of Superman, the biggest selling story arc of all time. They are rehashing that where Lois Lane is going on revenge and like she becomes the eradicator is going to start offing everybody. And it's, it's so funny because the death of Superman comic series worked because it felt like, yeah, no, they're really. And, and that was the verbiage coming out. No, they're really killing Superman and he's done. And they needed to say that because ultimately let's be real here. I mean, I, you know, let's, let's be frank. I mean, I was there, I was reading Superman comics in the eighties. Superman would die a couple times a year. It wasn't a big, I mean, really, he'd, he'd die, die, die. He would die. They needed it, it, but this was an event because no, guess what? We're, we're killing off Superman and we're replacing him with four Supermen. And they didn't have that all planned out ahead of time. They literally, they were like, you know, DC was experimenting and putting money on the line what happens if we kill off Superman and we put four in his place? This is going to create new characters and all this. And that's what they're going for. It was the right fucking move on their part. And it does. It ends up becoming the biggest selling uh, comic book event in history. Still is to this day. And now you can make a multiverse comic that you're just loving and, you know, going crazy with. Uh, and and, and will probably sell well. I mean, I'll admit it. I even downloaded it. I'm like, well, i got to check this out. Because you did an event that had real weight Okay. I mean, did I want Superman to die? No, fuck no. In fact, I remember, and I've told this story before. I remember when I was reading it in the newspaper, I was walking up the street to my house from my grandmother's house. She gave it to me in the newspaper. She's like, gee, your Superman's going to die. I'm like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. And so I wouldn't even ride my bike. I was walking my bike up and holding the Superman or holding the, the newspaper on the handlebars. Okay. And I was reading it and I can remember the tears falling down on the ink of the newspaper because I was so, so, so sad that Superman was going to die like that. No, like that, that's, that's, that's not okay. You know, for, for that to happen, but DC didn't focus group. It didn't worry about the fact that little Brian is going to cry his eyes out and they did it anyway. And now it's still one of my favorite stories. In fact, the novelization version of it is fucking brilliant. Hell, there's even a great game around it that Capcom made for the super Nintendo. I am so glad that the writers went ahead and said, this is going to piss some people off, but goddamn, we're going to kill Superman. And they did it anyway. They took the risk. And now even today, they are making comic books based off of that storyline. 30 years later. You've got to take those risks. Those are the things that stand the test of time. And eventually, like if it's that exceptional of a story, if it's that exceptional of something, even if, or how about, there's the classic, speaking of G.I. Joe, I mean, that's certainly a niche taste, okay? But everybody talks about that classic issue of Larry Hama's G.I. Joe from the 80s, where there wasn't a word spoken. It was Snake Eyes, because he's mute. You know, I mean, there, there were, yeah, anyway, it, 
there wasn't a, a word spoken. It was just action. And everybody talks about that comic book to this day, even if whether they like G.I. Joe or not, they talk about it because they talk about the great artistic prowess of it. Okay, but you had, they they had, they just, they were, they needed an issue. They had a contract to put on an issue. So they took the risk and they took the shot. And now, you know, 40 years later, 30 years later, whatever, we're still talking about it. Okay. My point being is that even then that was appealing to a very, G.I. Joe was appealing to a niche. Okay. But because it was so well done that when you gave it time, decades to sit, now it's considered legendary by everybody, even people that don't give two shits about G.I. Joe. And so nobody's taking risks anymore and nobody's making, nobody's willing to do these little one shots, you know, like, uh, yeah, I mean, I think I gave you a lot as far as why the comic book industry isn't, it just, it got greedy and it didn't just get greedy, but it also, I mean, it's still greedy because that's ultimately why they're listening to a lot of these focus groups. They still like Marvel's got to be this billion dollar company or they don't even want to keep their doors open. DC is the same way. And because of that, and I don't know what that says about financial incentives, but I don't think it says something good. And boy, do we got to start, start paying attention to that. Too many people, I think they hear that when you start questioning financial incentives, they're like, oh, you fucking anti-capitalist and all this. Whoa, 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 whoa. No, let's take a good look at the state of entertainment right now. And we all know it's crap. It ain't what it used to be. And it's not because of a lack of creativity or originality. It's because somebody's wanting to play it safe to maximize profits. And there's, that's got to be looked at. That has to be questioned. It doesn't mean you don't like markets. That doesn't mean you're anti-money or some other crap like that. It means you're asking a fucking question, right? The old saying goes, questioning authority isn't about being right or wrong. It's about questioning authority. Don't have to be right or wrong. The process itself is worthwhile. There's something wrong. There's something really, really wrong with financial incentives. Um, anyway, the comic book company or the comic book industry has paid the price. <laughs> Pun intended. They've paid the price because they think that they have to do crazy money. Now, let me give you, in fact, let me, please allow me to prove my point because I can give you a real world example of a company that's doing ridiculous money. Okay. Now they're not doing billions and billions, but it's a company that is thriving, that is growing, that is employing people, that is making a very comfortable life for all involved. And that has respect from the comic book fandom. Xenoscope. Z-E-N-E-S-C-O-P-E. Xenoscope. This company is doing very well for itself. Started with one title, Grim Fairy Tales, okay? And they, and part of how they were able to do so well is they used a lot of public domain characters to start building up and work with their uh, original IP. But they start this up and what are they doing? They're doing the crazy sexy covers, right? They're doing the, you know, the, the, the artistry inside all this stuff. It's all either, you know, openly sexual or quasi or whatever. And they're doing like the, the, the hard twists in the stories. They're, they're, they're graphic. They're very, you know, I mean, they're not, again, they're not treating any demographic like an idiot. Okay. And they're doing very well for themselves. They have a whole universe now that's grown out of like originally one title that then that turned into like four. 
and and it just keeps going and eventually they'll probably like like scale some of that back at least i hope they do but they know what works and they get away with it why because they're not trying they're not trying to get everybody to jump on board with you know with their shit i mean folks you know i know everybody loves star wars but really shouldn't we see it as a bit of a problem that the new star wars trailer airs during an during monday night football you saw that rise of skywalker came out during monday night football why would you do that because not everybody watches football no they don't it's because you're trying to reach somebody new you're trying to reach you know joe six pack of old milk and that's a problem because you can't get anything exceptional that way especially when you appeal to the fucking dum-dums so Xenoscope isn't trying to do that. And they're not bothering to make movies. They're not bothering, even though I bet they could make some fine ones. Um, they're not bothering to do anything on YouTube or all this horse shit. They are doing one thing and they're doing it really fucking well. And they are going with the 90s formula that did make money and did know their audience and appealed to that audience. And if you're not that audience, then that ain't for you, baby. You don't like seeing scantily clad, large-breasted women or whatever on the cover of a fucking comic book? Don't buy it. Just don't buy it. You know, I, I'm, I'm reminded of, uh, well, let's bring this full circle, huh? Reminded of Bob Costas. How about that? There's a little football for you, or a little sports for you. Bob Costas, in the 90s, is one of the greatest interviews of all time, interviewing Vince McMahon when wrestling was becoming white hot, stone cold rock, all these people were starting to become a thing. And Bob Costas is saying, you're doing this on your show. You're doing this on your show, you know, and kids are seeing this and blah, blah, blah. And Vince McMahon gets right in Bob, like leans forward, gets right in Bob Costas' face. He says, says, you know what you can do? You can turn the TV off. Bam. (laughs) (laughs) Again, we we have to accept, like if we're going to be people, that genuinely, and I think it's a great thing, like it is becoming, there is definitely a overall awareness on the planet Earth that there are a lot of different ways of living and we got to start respecting those. If we are going to respect all of these different ways of living, we need to understand that there are and that some of those aren't don't always play well necessarily with others, but then we don't have to force it upon each other either. There are people who want to read comic books that have scantily clad women. Those comic books sell very well. Does, is there a problem with that? Does that speak to an issue? Does that speak to the patriarchy or something like that? Maybe. Okay. But then you really got to go much bigger and say, well, then, I mean, comic books are a visual medium. My, my art, see, my argument for the art, for that choice in artistic style, like your Rob Liefelds and, and, and Jim Lee's, uh, and, and go down the list of them. Okay. My argument for that has always been with a comic book, a, it's a very visual medium. Okay. And it's also not a large visual medium, meaning oftentimes to tell as much story as you can in one issue back when you used to do that, when you used to tell one story in one issue, you might have an inch or two to get across like, especially if there's a big battle, what's, who is, who is fighting and how are you going to tell Wonder Woman from Superman? Okay. Well, one way is one has a cape. 
In fact, that's part of the reason that a lot of heroes had capes. It was a way for you in a very small frame, a very small picture, to know that that's the hero doing the business. That's why they had these outlandish, brightly colored costumes and all this stuff. It was to parlay instantly on a very small piece of paper or part of that paper what is going on. You do with women. How do you do that? Well, you I mean, I guess you could give them capes, but then when it turns into like a justice league situation or justice society of America or something like that, what are you going to do? Well, you accentuate the features of the gender of the character or the biology of the character that is being, that is being put on the page. And so you end up with, you know, women with, with large breasts and whatever else and uh, showing off their legs and then, you know, all, all this stuff. I mean, that's part of why that happens. It is not, it is not, I mean, there are certainly times where it is, but it is not always because, well, we just want to get a bunch of teenage boys, you know, hormones going. Because they do the same thing for the guys. You know, I, I mean, comic books, <laughs> they were an equal opportunity employer as far as hiring superheroes go because everybody looked completely outrageous. It's a story tactic for a visual medium, okay? It's like method actors saying things louder and more slowly or something like that as compared to a standard actor. Wow, he sounds ridiculous. Well, yeah, that's so you can hear him in the back of the fucking theater and you can understand what's going on. It's the same idea. Does that sell more comic books? Well, it happens to do so. You know, and is it appealing to parts of our animal selves? Yeah, guess what? That's what we are. And it's what we have. So we, we can't live in a world where we, and, and I, I approve of this, where people are supported and allowed to look however they want to look and do, you know, do what they do and all this stuff and have the ultimate, you know, the, the most amount of options in life. And then at the same time, you know, focus group the shit out of everything so that it means nothing to nobody, you know, as to where you could just appeal to the smaller amount of people. I mean, a lot of that, maybe it just all comes down to greed. I don't know, but that's, that's what's wrong today. Focus groups, which doesn't allow them to do what made comic books hot and exciting and selling in the first place. Okay. And, and then maybe the, you know, the bigger issue is, is just that, that pure greed of there's just too much, you, you know, big storylines. Like now they do a big storyline once or twice a year that covers all these comic books. You can't even afford to be a comic book fan today. You can't. So th those are two of the big things, but I, I think I gave you, you know, anything else that I talked about how things used to be that aren't there now. Well, that's what's going on. And that that's part of my problem with it. Okay. This went really, really long. So let's get into our album of the week. Um, my album of the week is, this is, uh, th this is actually an old album from the nineties that fell prey to, you know, this whole, or I don't want to say fell prey cause I don't think it's a problem. Okay. Look, if sex sells, if I'm buying sex, then fucking sell it to me. Right. Understand? Why is this a fucking problem? Fuck. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so Danger Danger, uh, one of my favorite bands of all time, easily in my top 10. Um, they had an album come out in 91 called Screw It. Now, I'm going to let you walk away. Guess what? You get to walk away with not just stuff in your mind, but stuff that you can actually go and do. And I think you're going to enjoy. Uh, they had an album come out in 91 called Screw It. Now, here's the thing. At the time, d digital mastering wasn't exactly a thing yet. 
but digital processing certainly was. And what sounded good on either a, again, this came out in 91. So you're coming out of the eighties music production process, even though CDs have been around since like 1984. Right. Anyway, what sounded good on an audio cassette, the most popular medium at the time, and what sounded good perhaps even on vinyl, if that was still a thing for some people. Okay, again, it takes time for these new, you know, processing uh, technologies and mastering technologies to become a thing. May not sound good on such a pure product as digital processing, which ends up on the CD. Okay. This is why things like THX had to become a thing anyway, right? In movies, okay? Because it was processing for these new formats and new technologies to take advantage of that and for the sound to still sound good and not sound like tin. And that's the problem is that if you bought, like, say, CDs from the 80s, a lot of them have a very tinny sound to them. Now, if you put them into an audio cassette or if you maybe you had them on vinyl, there would be a certain warmth that comes with analog processing of sound that you would get from that, Okay. And so a lot of these albums, frankly, like, and also their, like their tuning, their, the volume on them is very, very low compared to a modern album, because again, digital mastering had not become the process that it would become, say, when you get to the aughts. Okay. And that's why in the late nineties, you had a lot of remasters, re-releases of albums. I mean, certainly that makes money for the record company as well off the same music that's already in their catalog. But then also, um, you know, there, there was like justification for it, quite frankly. Because, yeah, at the very least, turn up the gain on these fucking things because it doesn't sound half as loud as music today. Um, and so, Screw It by Danger Danger, which is my favorite album by them. It's their second album. Their first one is their self-title from 89. Uh, Screw It is one of those albums, and so is the first album, Danger Danger, where it, oh man, it just doesn't, like, you. it's a product of its time. Not that the music isn't great. It is. Not that the musicianship isn't top-notch. It is. Okay? The problem is, is the mastering process and the CD process at the time, not good. So, when you have MP3s based off of that CD, it sounds shitty and significantly more low volume than every other ounce of music, than, or than most of the music that you have. In 2002... Uh, a company called Bad Reputation, which is out of a rec- which they're like that rock candy records that I mentioned at the beginning. Bad Reputation out of France did a remastering of Danger Danger's Screw It. And it ended up being a two disc uh, affair. But they do a, a couple of very interesting with uh, interesting things with this. So one is, is that they would split the first song, which is called Monkey Business. Now that has an intro called Ginger Snaps that in the original CD version of it was once was one thing, but it was like this long minute and a half intro, which I know a lot of metal bands do, but it's this long minute and a half intro. And you just want to get into this really, really fun, sexy song. Uh, so this remaster that bad reputation did, uh, split that up. Okay. First off, they did remaster it. You know, the gains turned up everything. I mean, and, and it sounds so fresh, so new. It sounds like a new album. Um, but they split up the songs better, including like the secret track at the end, which was DFNS. Then they put a new track that I'd never, a song I'd never heard before called just what the doctor ordered on the first disc. And it's phenomenal. Um, and then on the second disc, they took a live show recording, uh, that I don't know if this was available anywhere else. I know where it's also available now, but at 2002, I don't think this is available anywhere, but it's a whole live show from 1990, 
uh, that obviously doesn't have any, because it's from 1990, it doesn't have any songs from Screw It, but it has really the, some of the best from their first album. Uh, and this is, oh man, I haven't been this excited listening to a live album in a long time because they do some really long cuts and some fun stuff in the middle of these very fun, sexy songs, because that's what Danger Danger delivered primarily in their first couple of albums was, you know, just these sex fueled. I mean, like the, their songs talking about threesomes and everything. I mean, it's just, it, it's nuts. It's, it's, it's so fun. Um, and they even do a cover of rock and roll hoochie coo, uh, yeah, Hoochie Koo on, uh, you know, live. And, and, and that's, that's fun too. Cause I think, uh, their, their singer at the time, not Paulie Lane, um, but their singer, Ted Poley, I think is just one of the best singers ever. It was really, really well done. Uh, and so this is something that I've known existed. I knew about this French remaster. I have been looking for it for a very long time. And I finally, finally found it. And there is a website that I've been going to for a little while because I used it to get some other things, including like these rare bonus discs that were part of Motley Crue's greatest hits album back in 98, as well as to get Gene Simmons uh, vault set. Okay. But the, and I put a link in the show notes for this and you can check it out, but it's zero as in the number zero day rocks, R O X zero day rocks.org. And this website, now here's the rub. Okay. I'm going to give you the secret of how to use this because this guy is very clever in how he does everything. To, to keep web crawlers from finding his site or finding his shit. But anyway, when you click, he does like a blog post for each album that he puts up and he puts up new albums every day. It's amazing. Uh, new releases, remasters, you know, old releases. It's, it's really incredible. Uh, out, a lot of out of print stuff. I mean, just about anybody, if you listen to my kind of music, any band you can think of, you can type in, you're going to find something just amazing when you, when you, when you do so through the search. Um, but anyway, you go there. Now, when you click on one of the posts that tells you about the album that you're going to download, click on the cover artwork for the album. Okay. When you're at the post and that will take you to the download link. It's not readily apparent there and that's on purpose. And I think it's great. Uh, I think it's, it's really, really brilliant. Um, but I found this on there. He also had the rock candy remaster speaking to them of danger, dangerous first album, which also includes at the end five tracks, which is the five live tracks that are on the bad reputation edition of screw it. So you could really get both of these albums and I could really make them both albums of the week. Uh, but you gotta, you gotta hear this. If you've never heard these albums, man, and the remastering is so stunning. The Rock Candy remaster of Danger Danger's self-titled album is fantastic, too. Uh, everything just sounds so fresh. Everything's popping in it. It's, I mean, these sound like new albums. And fuck, if, if they sounded this good back then, man, I, I, I think Danger Danger would be a much bigger deal. I mean, they still would have ran into the brick wall of Nirvana, unfortunately, but... And fuck them, you know, fuck Nirvana. But, uh, oh, they, they, they could have been a lot bigger than they were. So anyway, uh, screw it. The Bad Reputation Remaster 2 disc uh, from Danger Danger. Masterpiece of an album. I mean, just I, I had to talk about it. And enjoy that website, Zero Day Rocks, because you're going to just find so much awesome shit uh, there. It's, it's really, really amazing. I mean, I feel like I have to replace half my music collection because they have so many better versions of these albums and everything there. It's uh, oh, just a stunning museum 
of sexiness and fun. So anyway, uh, that'll be it for your Wednesday Q&A. We had a really, really long one here, almost went two hours. Uh, more Sovereign Tech to come out, and, and even in this last couple days of October, we have more coming for you. I will see all of you woo, on the other side.